What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 58 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boon people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation, dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Sam Sims. Sam is a quantitative education researcher interested in teaching and education policy. He works at University College London's Institute of Education, where he lectures on policy analysis and evaluation. He's also a researcher at Education Data Lab and co-author with Becky Allen of the book The Teacher Gap. But today we're talking about two very exciting reports that Sam has led over the last couple of years. And these two reports dive into the topic of what makes effective professional development. What makes an effective PD program is a huge question and it sits at the heart of the knowledge that we as a profession need in order to continue to improve teaching and learning. I'm super excited about this research that Sam and his colleagues have done with the support of the Education Endowment Foundation because I really think that it represents a significant improvement in our collective understanding of what makes professional development work. The main report that we're discussing today, which was released on the same day as this podcast goes live, is entitled, What are the Characteristics of Effective Teacher Professional Development, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis? And for those who've listened back to my early ERRR episodes with Adrian Simpson and John Hattie critiquing and then defending the meta-analysis, this episode serves as an excellent follow-up. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month we're featuring a new addition to the In Action series entitled Five Formative Assessment Strategies in Action by Kate Jones. This book builds on Dylan Williams' powerful and often poorly understood formative assessment framework. It does this by drawing on examples from a wide range of contributing authors to demonstrate the different ways in which William and Leahy's five key formative assessment principles can be implemented in the classroom. Another fantastic book from John Cat Educational recently is Oliver Caviglioli's just-released Organize Ideas, which takes the reader through 35 different types of visual organizers and, crucially, describes when and how to use them. Often the main visual tool in a teacher's toolkit is the mind map or the flowchart, so if you're looking to expand your repertoire of powerful visual structures to enhance learning, look no further. If you're keen to get your hands on five formative assessment strategies in action, organize ideas, or any other John Cat book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any JCE book, just enter ERR30 at checkout. Or if you'd like a signed copy of CLT in Action, personally signed by me and including a personalized message just for you, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash book and you'll see the steps for ordering a signed copy right there. And one final opportunity, listeners, if you'd like to get a weekly summary of takeaways from education, Twitter, blogs, and more, jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe and you'll be signing yourself up to a weekly email coming out every single Friday with a great summary of educational takeaways from the week just gone. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 58 of the ERRR podcast with Sam Sims. Sam Sims, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. 
Lovely to be here with you, Ollie. Thanks for coming. First question, Sam, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Sam, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Okay, yes. Yeah, so I work at UCL University in London and I work in a, a sort of small, quite young research centre called the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities or CPO. And my job there is to do research on teachers and teaching. So um, I guess the first few years of my academic career, I was mostly focused on teacher shortages and kind of dealing with issues around recruitment and retention of teachers. But now I'm very much switching into studying teacher professional development, initial teacher training and that kind of stuff. Fantastic. I love the end of that name and equalizing opportunities. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's the key bit. Yeah. And could you tell us a little bit about your career to date, Sam? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, starting at the beginning, I did politics, philosophy and economics degree, mostly economics and left university, not really knowing what I wanted to do, to be honest, and kind of fell into a job working in a think tank in London that was focused on the civil service and kind of the machinery of government, yeah, building on the the politics stuff and uh, some of the economics I'd studied at university. But I knew that I really wanted to work on education for some time before that. I just hadn't really worked out how I wanted to get involved. And while I was working at the Institute for Government, I applied for uh, to do a PhD. And that was initially with Rebecca Allen, who's a sort of educationalist and economist. And yeah, I've just kind of never left, never left UCL since then, really. So I've done, I've done a couple of other things along the way, but essentially, I've been studying, yeah, teachers and teaching. Since then, I've worked at Education Data Lab, which is a kind of charitable research body that does a lot of work with the big education data sets in the UK. And yeah, after my PhD, became a research fellow at UCL, and now I'm a lecturer. Yeah, just sort of plowing my own furrow, essentially. Fantastic. A, a, a rich history um, that's, I guess, led, led up in many ways to, to what we're talking about today, which is really exciting. I think so, yeah. Cool. So yeah, thanks for coming on, Sam. And today we're talking about two of your papers. The first one that you wrote with Harry Fletcher Wood, who was actually our guest uh, from last month yeah. on the EGPLR podcast, and then we kind of foreshadowed this conversation as well, which was good. That was one that came out last year and one that's just about to come out on the day that we're going to be releasing this podcast, which is actually why this podcast is being delayed from the 1st of, of the month to the 8th to align with the release of the report, which is really exciting. But I wanted to start with that first report, which came out last year and it was entitled Identifying the Characteristics of Effective Teacher Professional Development, a Critical Review. So Sam, could you tell us a little bit about maybe what was the status of education research around what it is that makes effective professional development before your critical review? Right. So, yeah, when I was doing my PhD, I was kind of very interested in this topic of, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and money on teacher professional development, which seems to me intuitively like a re- the right thing to do, a really good thing to do. And the evidence is that the, the average teacher across rich countries spends about 10 days a year on professional development broadly defined. Uh, so I was interested in, okay, what do we know about how to do this well? How can we make the best use of that time and, uh, you know, and, and that taxpayer's money? And I was looking into the literature. There's various kind of literature reviews that had been written pretty, you know, every two or three years, somebody would summarize, summarize the evidence. And over time, 
kind of in the late noughties and early teens, this consensus, parent consensus, had emerged around the idea that professional development is more effective if it is sustained, that is, occurs over a long period of time, uh, as, a, as opposed to one-off, I guess. Collaborative, and that's very loosely defined. I've heard some people just define that as kind of two or more teachers working together. Has teacher buy-in, so, yeah, uh, you know, the teachers are keen, keen to participate. Is subject-specific as opposed to teaching general pedagogical skills that's kind of not directly related to, to the content of, of what you teach. Draws on external expertise as opposed that essentially meaning somebody from outside the school comes in to help. And then practice-based, which usually means that there's there's some element of classroom practice involved as opposed to just theory. And over time, yeah, these reviews had kind of built on each other and uh, later reviews were kind of referencing and using the conceptual frameworks roughly along the lines of the six components that I just set out. And a consensus had built. And, it, you know, the, the idea that this is a consensus, this was not, you know, something that Harry and I were suggesting. It's kind of been explicitly referred to as a consensus in, in some of these papers. So it seemed like we'd learned quite a lot, which was encouraging. But when we started digging into that, you know, all was not well. <laughs> some, of, some of the, some of the uh, research this was based on and, yeah, the, the way these reviews had been done, there were some problems with this. But nevertheless, there was this consensus and it seemed to be influencing policy in, in a few countries. Yeah, okay. Um, just briefly, could you give us a bit of a bit of a um, understanding of maybe the scale of the impact that this quote unquote consensus had had made? Sure. I mean, it's always hard to know kind of what impact it's had out there in the world. But if you look at uh, official policy documents, it seems like it's had a bit of influence. So there have been EU funded reports that have basically concluded along the lines of the consensus view of what makes for effective teacher professional development. In the US, the Every Student Succeeds Act, which I think is the Obama era major federal education reform, that requires the professional development to be collaborative and practice-based, I think. And then in the UK, we have this thing called, or actually in England, technically, we have this thing called the Standards for Teacher Professional Development, which sort of sets out, you know, the best practice, essentially, which draws pretty clearly on this same consensus view around effective teacher professional development. Okay. All right. So, so in, in your kind of first answer there, you talked about things not not being all well and some um some cracks kind of appearing what was the problem that you and harry found in that original critical review yeah so we sort of started with these policy documents and then you know the eu and and in england and then looked at the reviews that they cited and then kind of followed the references in those reviews back to the original underlying research and seemingly the the, the kind of the general approach uh, in this literature was to gather together a load of studies about different pd programs evaluations did they work how how well did they work then corral all of the ones that seemed to look like they worked and then look for common themes in the way that those uh, apparently successful, effective programs were designed. And if you want to use this 
this sort of approach, you need to, well, you need to, you need to uh, worry about two things. Like there's two things you really need to get right. The first is you need a really good way of distinguishing effective PD from ineffective PD, more from less effective. And that requires that the original papers have strong research designs. You also need to have some way of distinguishing, I think this is the phrase that you use in this podcast, actually, Ollie, you know, the active ingredients of these apparently successful PD programs from what the philosopher J.L. Mackey would call causally redundant components. So, you know, to, to use a trite example, if all of the effective PD programs happen to be implemented on a Tuesday, just by coincidence, that would obviously be not be what is what's making them effective. And, you know, there in reality, it's more subtle than that. And that may, that, you know, as a researcher, you need some way of distinguishing the causally redundant parts from, from the true active ingredients in these, in these effective programs. What we found is that many of these reviews used really quite weak stuff. You know, the original research they drew on used really quite weak research designs. So often it was kind of case studies from which it's very hard to know. You know, you can't, you don't know what the causal effect of that was on teaching and learning. And also they didn't really have any compelling way of distinguishing, you know, the active ingredients from, from the causally, uh, you know, just the causally redundant parts. And the, the analogy that Harry and I sometimes use for this is with toothpaste. You know, on the back of a toothpaste tube, it'll sort of say ingredients and it'll say a bunch of things, you know, whatever, mint flavoring. And then it'll say active ingredients, fluoride and some other other chemicals that actually keep your teeth in good shape. And so, you know, essentially, if we use the method that was that was used in this literature to try and work out like what distinguishes good from bad toothpaste, you know, we'd probably end up concluding that mint flavoring was one of the things that distinguished good from bad toothpaste. This is obviously not correct. So, you know, at the end of the review paper, the critical review that you mentioned, we essentially just concluded that we just don't know whether any of these things are really the characteristics of effective teacher professional development. You know, it's broadly speaking, it's no evidence one way or the other. So it seems like this consensus and the kind of policy documents built on it was, yeah, it was just built on sand, really. Mm, that's really interesting. I, I like that toothpaste analogy. Within it, you talked about the ingredient versus the active ingredient. But I think it actually also captures that first part of your, you know, the two things you need to get right, which is distinguish effective from ineffective. And I, I kind of chugged to myself then because you said, you know, mint obviously isn't the thing that makes toothpaste good or not. And I was like, well, it actually depends on what you define as good. If you define good as just makes you, you know, have fresh breath, then maybe mint is the thing that distinguishes, right? And so that really drives that first thing, which is, you know, if good PD is just that makes teachers happy and feel good about themselves, then maybe these other things are, are, are important. But actually, when we define it in a different way, and I'd love to invi invite you to kind of tell us how you encourage us to, to measure it in a second, then we really get to the heart of distinguishing effective from ineffective. So how, how do we do that, Sam? What, what is it important that we look at? Yeah, so I, different people come at this and see this in different ways. But Harry and I and many others in this literature uh, 
basically insist on a pretty high standard for what counts as good PD and or effective PD. And that criteria is that it improves teaching in a way that results in pupils learning more. And that's not to say there aren't other interesting things we can study about PD. Um, You know, I'd be quite interested in, does it increase teachers' sort of confidence and self-efficacy? I think that's important. But ultimately, I think if you don't insist on looking at, uh, you know, improved teaching as reflected in improved learning, then you can end up kidding yourself that what you're doing is really valuable, you know, from the pupil's point of view which is ultimately kind of why we're all here, right? (laughs) We're here to help kids, you know, learn, gain skills, see the world in a more detailed, rich way. And the best way to make sure you're doing that is just to insist on, you know, the ultimate endpoint goal of PD being to improve pupil learning. Love it. So we've looked at these, you've said that, you know, to kind of do a meta-analysis and draw valuable conclusions that can actually inform practice we need to do two things we need to distinguish effective from ineffective and we need to work out where the active ingredients are you've you've talked about this just now in the pd space but i I wanted to invite you to tell us like is this a problem more broadly like is is it just in pd meta-analyses that these issues happen or is that is more of a thing across education more broadly yeah, um, yeah, this is interesting. So a lot of the debates that ha- the kind of classic debates in education, you know, inquiry versus direct instruction, traditional versus progressive, procedural versus conceptual in maths, all of these kind of long standing debates. They're all, as demonstrated by my X versus Y formula there, they're all like very, very zoomed out, big picture debates, right? And so just to take the inquiry one, you know, there's so much going on inside the concept of inquiry. And I hope that as the as the kind of education literature progresses, and this has already happened actually to to a significant extent, we kind of get beyond those big picture labels and zoom into, okay, well, what are the valuable bits of inquiry? You know, what are the active ingredients within inquiry, for example, that that, that do or don't make a difference? And so, yeah, this this is, to answer your question, this is a much broader issue. And it's specifically an issue with meta-analysis, as you say, because meta-analysis is always a sort of backward looking thing. You know, we're looking at all the studies that have been published and we're saying, okay, what can we learn from this about what makes a difference, right? And, you know, it's essentially a process of reverse engineering, which is like notoriously hard to do. Yeah, we're we're looking at the finished product. We can say something about whether that product seems to work because we've got the original research. But when it comes to divining, okay, what was it about that product, like get inside the black box that had the effect, then, yeah, that's that's just a real challenge. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, this is this is great. I mean, this is a topic that was touched on. I, I would really encourage listeners to go back to episode 17 of the ETRPLR podcast when I had a chat with Adrian Simpson and he he critiqued the meta-analysis and he he brought up a lot of these points. And I think it's just so much of the the kind of widely toted consensus. I don't know if that's the plural of consensus, is it? Am I right? <laughs> let's go with it, yeah. Let's go with it. Let's go. Let's go with it. The consensus um, within education come from these kind of take a few hundred studies chuck them in a, a blender or something, chuck them in some big yeah. data processor, you know, rate them by effect size and see what comes out without even looking at the the methodology or in detail about, you know, what metrics were used to measure success. And there's so much we know about, you know, which kind of metrics show up 
more stronger effect sizes. And when we don't take those things into account, we end up with these crazy results. So I would really encourage um, uh, listeners to go back to that. What I'm particularly excited about with your work, Sam, is you you and Harry didn't just stop there. You didn't just say, oh, here's our here's our critique. Here's why the consensus shouldn't really be taken as a consensus. You actually took it a step further, which is really the main topic of our discussion today, which is a paper that's about to come, in, come out, which is entitled, What are the Characteristics of Effective Teacher Professional Development, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis? So you really, you put your money where your mouth was and you've, um, <laughs> you've, you've invested and you've, you've done it. You've basically tried to solve this problem and, and conduct a really rigorous meta-analysis. So we're going to go in, into this in detail, but kind of as a, as a precursor, a bit of an intro, are you able to give us like, you know, a 280 character tweet for us here, Sam, about <laughs> what you did rather than just critiquing this? Yeah, sure. So the short version is we provide a new framework, so a brand new framework for thinking about designing good PD, which has been carefully tested against the set of 104 RCTs on professional development that have been published to date. I don't know if that's 280, but it's quite short. That's good. That's good. Emoji smiley face, emoji thumbs up. <laughs> oh, here's a link. Here's a link. Please follow. Um, that's great. So, well, let's let's break that down. So, one of the things that's crucial and that we've we've touched on already is kind of the standards of evidence. You know, what do you actually include in your meta analysis, and which studies do you not include? So, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what was the standard, but um, against which you you decided whether to throw things out or, or keep them into the study? Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is your point about what gets chucked into the blender and, you know, it's sort of garbage in, garbage out, essentially. And we're quite lucky, really, in that, you know, conducting this research during, well, at the end of 2020 is when we finalized our search. Uh, there, there is now a lot of literature to draw on. So I said there that, you know, we, we end up with 104 RCTs in the study. And that's the number of RCTs, so, you know, randomized controlled trials. So we can afford to be quite picky now, which is great. And it, you know, really helped us um, ensure that we're not putting any garbage in <laughs> and therefore reducing the chances of getting garbage out. And so our criteria for, for putting things into the blender were we only wanted randomized controlled trials. And there's a reason for that. You know, they help us probably better than any other research design, understand the causal impact of these different PD programs on, uh, you know, the quality of teaching as reflected in people learning. We also, you also mentioned, Ollie, just then that they say effects, effect sizes are not effect sizes are not effect sizes. This is Adrian Simpson's point that, you know, an effect size of 0.2 might be considered quite small if we've got some sort of brief questionnaire measure, for example, teachers' self-efficacy in the classroom. But an effect size of 0.2 is actually enormous if we're measuring the impact on pupil test scores. And so we, we wanted to avoid... Standardized test, test scores. Uh, yeah, unstandardized test scores. Yeah, yeah. And so we wanted to avoid kind of comparing incomparable things like that. Um, to, to avoid some of the issues that Adrian's pointed out. And so what we end up doing is only including studies and or outcomes that look at the effects on standardized test scores. So these are not tests that have been sort of designed or tweaked by the researcher, but kind of off-the-shelf tests that have, uh, you know, a pedigree and have been used elsewhere. That's great. Two two great filters there. The next thing that really got me excited when I was reading through this paper was kind of how you how you thought about the studies. You know, before you were talking about kind of loosely categorizing things as like inquiry or not inquiry or things like that. But you actually you you kind of 
cut the studies up in lots of different ways. And, and three of the key ways where you looked at programs, you looked at forms of PD, and then you looked at those mechanisms or those active ingredients within it. Could you tell us a bit, well, let's just start with programs. So what did you mean by programs and what might be some examples of this? Yeah, so a kind of a strange thing about randomized controlled trials is that you're always evaluating an intervention. It's like that sort of word that you read over and over again in the academic literature because the whole point is you're of a randomized controlled trial is you're sort of intervening in the world, giving the PD to some teachers, not giving it to other teachers, and then comparing the difference. And so these interventions have to come really in the form of programs. And what we mean by that is... Um, specific sets of activities and materials that kind of have their own identity. So, you know, they, they often have a name and they tend to be sort of, they've been developed by somebody, usually in a university or a school somewhere, um, and they're associated with those people and institutions. So an example of this would be dialogic teaching, which is a program you can, um, I think you can buy it off the shelf. There's a manual that comes that kind of explains how to do it. And there's even, it, it focuses on classroom talk, as you can probably guess. And it has this series of codified kind of moves that teachers can use in the classroom in order to facilitate kind of high quality classroom talk. And this, this was developed by Robin Alexander, who's a professor at Cambridge University. It's kind of his baby. And this has been tested in uh, trials by the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK. So you can see it has these specific materials and activities, and it's associated with a certain person and institution. And it's the kind of thing you can sort of get off the shelf. Okay, great. So that's kind of programs. And often people would say, you know, does this program work? And so listeners of the podcast will be familiar with, you know, there's a writing revolution that would be, could be seen as a program or a method. Then there's things like philosophy for children, another program, um, for example. So that's the programs. What about, what about forms? What did you mean when you slice things up in terms of forms? Right. So, so one of the kind of limitations, if you like, of programs is that, you know, most schools don't have access to most programs. You know, a lot of them are developed in the US and you just can't sort of get them in England or I guess also in Australia. You know, there's only so many days in Robin Alexander's week where you can go around and sort of introduce dialogic teaching to schools. Uh, and so mostly what we talk about, the more natural way of talking about PD is, is, this, is through what we call forms. So this is a kind of at a higher level of abstraction. It's a kind of category of professional development, if you like. And they're defined more loosely just in terms of a set of characteristics. They're kind of typical identifying features. And so an example of this might be lesson study. It's quite well known. So, for example, the Teacher Development Trust's definition of lesson study, I'll just quote this, is it's a model of teacher-led research in which a triad of teachers work together to target an identified area for development in their students' learning. And then using the existing evidence and the sort of collaborative research and planning and teaching amongst the teachers, they use ongoing discussion, observation of a series of lessons, and then reflection and expert input to refine their, their teaching. So you can see how, you know, that doesn't mention a person who invented it or an institution it's associated with. It just talks at quite a sort of high level of abstraction about what do you have to be doing for it to be lesson study, for example. And this is, we talk about this, this is much more of a natural way to talk about PD because, you know, you can just read that definition and then your school could, you know, start the process of using lesson study in the school. You don't need to have access to a manual setting out how to do it or any of that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, there's, there's more room for adaptation and kind of, uh, yeah, local implementation, I guess. 
Great. So that's forms and some other forms people might be familiar with is like teacher learning communities or instructional coaching is one that's, you know, quite popular at the moment. So they, they would also fit into the, the categories of forms. What, yeah. In, in terms of mechanisms, we've, we've talked about it. We've talked about it as active ingredients. I think people probably got a bit of a vague idea, but could you give us a bit of a de- bit more detail about what you meant when you used the, the phrase mechanisms and maybe a couple of examples of some of the mechanisms that you referred to in the study? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think you're right to to sort of highlight the active ingredients part of the definition. That's the crucial bit, I think. You know, if if you look at if you ask sort of philosophers of social science what a mechanism is, they'll say something like it's the entities and activities organized in such a way that they're responsible for the phenomenon. So you can see why I emphasize the simple active ingredients version because that's a bit of a mouthful. So, you know, the phenomenon here that we're interested in is improved teaching and learning. The entities and activities are the design of the PD programs themselves. So they're they're the sort of moving parts, if you like, that lead to the changes in teaching and learning. And like a crucial thing to notice about this is that if these entities and activities are responsible for the the changes in teaching and the the resulting changes in learning, then if you remove them from the the PD, then you would change the outcome of the PD, right? If you you can think like another nice analogy is just, it's a bit mechanistic, but you know, like the transmission system in a car, it's what links the, the power coming from the engine to the effect we actually want, which is, you know, propelling the car along the road. Uh, and if you took out, I don't know, some bit of the drivetrain, <laughs> you, you would change the outcome pretty quickly. The car wouldn't go. So, yeah, so these are the things that explain how the PD has its effect. And in doing so, you know, or, or so, as a result, they're also, uh, you know, the active ingredients, essentially. Okay, I, I'm just having a bit of a look at um, some of them that you've got in the in the paper now. So you've got like yeah. manage cognitive load, revisit prior learning, something you could do in your PD. You could help teachers to set goals. You could help um, show that the information comes from a credible source. So these are like kind of some of those active ingredients as, as an example. I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, so we've got a list of, well, we've got a whole bunch of them in here. And this is how we deal with the second problem that we identified in the existing literature, essentially. So remember, there was like, yeah, are the, are the uh, original studies on which the reviews are based good? Like, do they have a strong design? And then how do you distinguish, you know, the active ingredients from the causally redundant parts? And so a large part of what we did writing this paper for a year is just reading a lot and trying to think really hard about how do we how do we solve that problem and the way we end up doing it in the paper the way we end up with our list of mechanisms like manage cognitive load revisit prior learning goal setting and so on is we only count something as a as a genuine mechanism or let's say an active ingredient if we can find causal evidence so like independent empirical evidence that these things are active ingredients elsewhere, i.e. outside of professional development. So for example, let's take goal setting. There's really nice evidence from just kind of decades of work in uh, sort of quite basic psychology showing that goal setting helps motivate sort of changes in practice in a whole range of settings. So for example, in health settings where people are trying to kind of lose weight or in, you know, it's been used in environmental settings where you're trying to get people to, for example, save energy by switching off the lights more. And these examples are obviously quite far from uh, education and, and teacher PD in particular, but that's kind of the point. You know, if we're, if we can observe that goal setting has this effect on changing practice 
in other domains, then we can be more confident that it's also going to be an active ingredient in the domain of teacher PD, as opposed to just being a causally redundant thing, you know, the mint flavoring and the toothpaste, for example. All right. I, I, was, I was quite interested, actually, why you did choose the word, use the word mechanisms over active ingredients. Uh, for, for me, kind of a mechanism, it's something that has both the causal part and the result part kind of within the statement. So um, I like, I think Adam Boxer has kind of pioneered this talking about using the word by, B-Y, yeah. in statements. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it helps the teachers to stay motivated by setting goals would be kind of like a mechanism Whereas, yeah, I find it hard to think of a mechanism as something that's like only the first part, especially when we specifically define the endpoint as like student outcomes. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. And this is, um, I think this is a tricky thing. You know, it's notable, for example, that all the examples, all those kind of analogies that I've used, toothpaste, car transmission, these are all from kind of natural science, if you like, you know, biology and dentistry or mechanics, not from social science, because it is just harder to envision, yeah, that, that sort of mechanistic relationship explaining how it has an effect or by, by which route to use, yeah, Adam's terminology, it has its effect. And in the, in the paper, we provide a sort of, for each of our mechanisms, we provide our best attempt as a mechanistic explanation of how, you know, how do goals have their effects on, on motivation? And essentially, we, for each one, we're relying on theory from psychology or theory from, you know, other social sciences about, you know, how does this thing how does goal setting have an effect on, on for example, people's behavior? Mm. Uh, but I agree it's kind of because it's invisible, <laughs> you know, you can't just look at the drivetrain of the car transmitting the power. Uh, it, it's a whole lot less intuitive than in the, in the, in the natural sciences. No, it's great. It's great. And I, I just love, I love this approach of really looking at the mechanism. I'm just having a look at that. You, you talked about, you did your best job of, um, elucidating what the mechanism might actually be and in, in the paper when it comes out people can look for the, they can just command f statement of theory explaining the operation of the mechanism and, and they all come up there and it's really it's really really cool the level of detail you've gone to to think about you know oh, how is it that motivating goals might actually um, increase the efficacy of teacher professional development how might teaching techniques um, influence the efficacy of teacher professional development and things like that yeah, perhaps the, it just occurs to me, Ollie, that one example which might be, yeah, might be quite compelling for kind of your audience is around, yeah, managing cognitive load. So most of your you know, listeners will probably be familiar with, you know, the idea of human cognitive architecture. And so managing cognitive load, well, you know, in some teacher PD helps, you know, provide new knowledge and insight by, to use Adam's nice phrase, ensuring that working memory doesn't become overloaded uh, with information. And so stuff gets lost. So you can see how that's the sort of mechanistic account. It's telling you the sort of process linking the mechanism to the thing the mechanisms are supposed to achieve, which is gaining new knowledge uh, or insight. Definitely. And, and, and also, you know, emphasizing as you did in the paper that that's optimizing cognitive load for the teachers learning the PD, not necessarily teaching the teachers how to teach students in line with cognitive load theory, though that is important as well. Right, right. We're, we're one level up here. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's mechanisms. But I think one of the, the really wonderful things you did in the paper was you actually, you actually use the mechanisms 
to define the forms. So just to remind people, when we talk about forms, we're talking about things like lesson study, instructional coaching, teaching, learning, teacher learning communities. But it was really great because you actually use these mechanisms to, to specify the forms. Because otherwise, you know, it's like, what is it actually to be a teaching learning community? Like, what is instructional coaching actually? So I'd love for you to tell us about that. Like, how which mechanisms constitute which forms, and also like, why did you choose to to use those mechanisms to describe the forms? Yeah. So part of what we're just zooming out a minute, you know, the reason why we're putting in place all this quite elaborate (laughs) conceptual framework is that we want to be able, you know, we've got these 104 randomized controlled trials. We want to have a list of things which we believe are genuine active ingredients or mechanisms. And we want to go through the descriptions of the professional development in all 104 of those randomized controlled trials and say, you know, okay, does the PD in paper one contain, does does it involve managing cognitive load? Is that part of the design? Does it provide, does it model the teaching techniques the, the focus of the PD, uh, yes or no? Does it include action planning from teachers, like specific planning about when and where, you know, the, the learning is going to be put into action, yes or no? Mm, these are all those mechanisms. So, exactly. These are all the mechanisms. And then at the end, we're going to sort of say, all right, what's the relationship between the impact the PD has on, you know, the quality of teaching as reflected in pupil learning and, you know, the number or the combination of these probably active ingredients that are present or absent in each of these PD programs. So that's the kind of big picture thing we're trying to achieve. Yeah, and thanks for thanks for helping us step out there, Sam. Because we we are we are getting quite deep, and I think it is really valuable. <laughs> it is really valuable for people to understand the importance of of this kind of theoretical framework. And just to add to that, what it what what this helps us to do is, you know, if you take a program like dialogic teaching or philosophy for children, and you find oh that works. I, I'm not sure if those two ones work or not, but if you find right. oh that does work, if we actually understand the mechanisms it means we can actually take that program and we can we can go well what parts of this program might we be able to save money on or save time on or not do so much of but still get the effect of the program and similarly it also allows us to say well actually if i don't want to do dialogic teaching but i want to see what i can learn from this program about how to teach i don't know science in grade seven um what what you know what ports across which which active ingredients port across that I can still use to to have the have a best bet that the the science teaching in year seven approach uh, or the PD for that is going to be effective. So that's I think that's really crucial for people to understand as well. Yeah. Yes. And you know this is a constant problem in education and in a bunch of other areas where you know you can have two pe- two people meeting each other. And they both say, oh, yeah, we're doing coaching in our school. We're doing instructional coaching in our school. But chances are, if you went to both the schools, what they're doing is actually quite different. And that's just something about the kind of vagueness of of the English language or, you know, the English language in specialist areas like this. We just don't have clear terms. And, you know, Dylan William has this nice phrase I can't remember where it's originally from, actually, but Dylan Williams kind of popularized it around lethal mutations of ideas. So how, you know, if something's a good idea and, you know, how many changes do you have to make to it or what do you have to leave out for it to just become ineffective? And so part of what we're trying to do here, which is maybe quite an ambitious goal, is just purge some of this ambiguity from the way that we talk about professional development. And, you know, the, the, the definition of lesson study I gave earlier was quite wordy and contained a lot of concepts, each of which we could probably sort of disagree about what exactly it contained or entailed. Whereas 
if we come back and sort of say, okay, we've got this list of mechanisms, let's define lesson study in terms of the active ingredients. And that just clarifies, we hope, like the things you absolutely must be doing in order to do lesson study. Maybe do some other stuff as well that's, uh, that's, that's useful or helpful. But really, if you're not doing these key things, then you probably, you've got a lethal mutation on your hands and actually you've adapted it to the point that, you know, it's, it's probably just not going to have its effect or it's kind of, you know, it's, you're no longer really looking at lesson study in essence. Mm. So, so yeah, maybe you want to give us what, you know, how did you define lesson study? Because I think you did lesson study, teacher learning communities and instructional coaching. So what were the, what are the active ingredients of each? Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's start with lesson study since we were just talking about it. Our approach to this was just to look through the literature on how it was defined um, by various people. Of course, they all disagreed a little bit, but we went for, okay, what were the things that were implicit across all of the different researchers or writers that, that were defining it. And the core of lesson study in our account is that it involves action planning. So teachers kind of jointly develop a lesson plan for a specific lesson study lesson. They sort of work together on it. And, it, and the, crucially, it's a specific lesson. So, you know, they know that they're doing their lesson study lesson on year five geography on Friday afternoon next week. Then the second mechanism is practical social support. So it's just teachers kind of advising each other on how to develop the lesson. And then feedback, which is, you know, from the observer teachers in the triad who are sitting in the lesson to the other teacher who was leading the lesson. And then that, in lesson study, that's usually a cycle. So essentially, you've got all the teachers giving each other feedback over the course of, um, you know, multiple cycles. And now, so there's some things to notice about this. It's very succinct. So, you know, I could get that down to, what is that, six words, action planning, practical social support, feedback. And that's good in some ways. Like we're trying to boil it down to its essence, but it also means that you leave out a lot of the detail. So that would, if, if somebody wanted to go away and, you know, get lesson study going in their school off the back of that, they would struggle. Like there's just not enough practical detail there. But what we're trying to do crucially is just capture the active ingredients, the stuff that must be there, the necessary bits of lesson planning. Oh, sorry, of lesson study. So then to go through the other two a bit more briefly, for instructional coaching, our account is that it involves goal setting. So they're going to focus on a specific area of practice, specific technique, feedback from the coach to the coachee, instruction and or modeling, rehearsal and or context-specific repetition. So we sort of split rehearsal is in a practicing something in an artificial environment outside of a real lesson. And then the context-specific repetition is doing it in a real lesson. Yeah, and, that, and that's the full set of mechanisms for instructional coaching, actually. And then for teacher learning communities, we say it's practical social support. What are the other two? Action planning and goal setting. And then the last one is teacher learning communities, which we define as being made of three mechanisms. And those mechanisms are practical social support, action planning, and goal setting. So some similarities to the, to the lesson study one, um, but also uh, slightly different. That's great. And, and again, what, what having this clarity, um, what it allows schools and institutions to do is really adapt. And Dylan William, to, to quote him again, oh, by the way, as well, I think, I think the lethal mutations orig originally came from Anne Brown. That's what James Mannion told me anyway. So that sounds <laughs> that's, right. that's yeah. at least going one <laughs> step backwards. Perhaps someone, it came from someone else to Anne Brown, but that, that, right. that, that's one approach. But what it allows us to do is to say, 
is to take, again, to quote Dylan William, a bit of a tight but loose approach. It's like, well, we want to do instructional coaching, but the way that Jim Knight does it isn't going to work where we are or the way that Paul Bambrick does it isn't going to work where we are. So we're going to adapt it. But we know that if we want it to be effective, it needs to have that goal setting. It needs to have the input. It needs to have the feedback and whatever. What was the last one? Have I missed one? Did we have instructional modeling? And instructional modeling. So it needs to have those four things. But around that, I can have some flexibility and be quite confident that I'm going to avoid a lethal mutation. So really, really powerful way to approach looking at forms. We hope so. <laughs> we hope so. We, oh, I'm excited about it. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and so an, another way you kind of, and just to, let's add another layer of theory here, Sam, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll reassure listeners that there's kind of a couple more layers and then we're going to break it down. We're going to go into the findings and then practical practical recommendations for the classroom. Uh, but it is really important we kind of kind of lay this, this foundation. Um, the, one of the other things you did, one of the other important things you did was you actually classified the mechanisms into kind of four areas, which were instilling insight. So some mechanisms act to instill insight, some around motivation and goal setting, some around teaching techniques, and some are around embedding practice. And then you had this um, hypothesis within your study, which you called the balanced hypothesis. Um, can you tell us a bit about the balanced hypothesis? Yeah. Yeah. So, so once we kind of gathered up all these different things, which look like they're probably going to be active ingredients in PD because they're active ingredients elsewhere, we're left with this, you know, bit of a sort of laundry list of mechanisms, really. And we need some, we wanted some way of saying, okay, you, well, firstly, what are all these mechanisms aiming to achieve? Because they're clearly, they're kind of pointing in different directions. And, you know, so, some of these, some of these mechanisms that we've got in our list sound kind of like they're substitutes for each other, right? So let me give a let me give an example of that. So for example, practical social support, modeling and feedback, you know, these all look like they're, you know, you could you could use them instead of each other potentially. What they're all pointing to, we think, is this idea of kind of developing or teaching techniques, right? They're all things you might do uh, with a mentor in a kind of in a real classroom or or kind of in, yeah in in a in a rehearsal session so they're all around yeah developing the techniques so we end up grouping our mechanisms into into these four categories that you talk about and the other thing this helps with is just providing an intuitive account of what these different things are doing so we've got you know some mechanisms like manage, manage cognitive load or revisit prior learning that are clearly aimed at helping to instill insight new knowledge about teaching we've got goal setting credible source and reinforcement which is all around yeah getting people to sort of adopt goals and we're talking about goals here as in like conscious intentions to change your practice essentially and this this actually relates back to that kind of that kind of two part mechanism thing we were talking about before. So it's kind of like instill insight or assist in instilling insight by managing cognitive load. You know, motivate teachers by getting to set goals. So actually, I hadn't realised that before, but that actually ties in quite quite nicely in, in that format. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And yeah, as I said, we've got a, a bunch five mechanisms for teach techniques, and then four mechanisms for embed practice. And this sort of just help when we're doing this research and we're kind of, you know, scratching our heads thinking, what is the best way to think about this? We just started playing around with this idea of let's just think at this higher level of insight, goals, techniques and practice and think about what would go wrong if any of those you know, if you weren't addressing those four purposes of, of professional development. And so you could have, for example, 
you could have PD, which helps instill insight and motivate goals. But if you miss out the start, if, you, if you're not addressing the aim of developing techniques or embedding practice, then this is the kind of common criticism of teacher professional development that it just kind of, you know, it's very interesting at the time, but it kind of, you know, teachers lead very busy professional lives. There's always loads to do and it never kind of feeds through into classroom practice. Uh, and this is sometimes referred to in the literature as the knowing doing gap. You've kind of, uh, yeah, you, you know, you've got the insight, uh, you think it sounds useful and you have a kind of have the intention to, you know, adapt your practice in some way. But yeah, it just doesn't feed through into actual changes in the classroom. Similarly, we could think about PD, which has, you know, combines the insights and the goals with the techniques. So there's some way of kind of putting this stuff into practice. But it doesn't involve any way of uh, it, it doesn't address the purpose of embedding practice. So that's the last of our four our four purposes of PD. And in this case, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence that you know, we're, we are all creatures of habits. There's centuries of psychological research on this. And in busy, stressful environments, we're more likely to kind of revert to established ways of doing things. You know, it's one way that we manage our, our own cognitive load, right? And we've got a whole bunch of stuff automated, probably fairly good. And, uh, you know, without yeah, Im embedding new practice, uh, essentially automating it, we're all likely, including teachers, to kind of revert to old habits and established ways of doing things. Uh, and, and in the paper, we set out yeah, a, a bunch of other kind of um, combinations of things that, you know, for example, let's, do, let's just do one more. If you have, if your PD is addressing motivate goals, developing techniques and embedding practice, but it's not really doing the first one around insight, this can lead to misapplication of ideas. So, for example, just give a really concrete example around retrieval practice. It's a common, uh, uh, I'm told by my friends who are sort of, uh, including Harry, who's involved firsthand in sort of teacher education and teacher training, that a common misapplication of retrieval practice is that, you know, the teachers will ask the class a bunch of questions, maybe at the start of the lesson, with the aim of doing retrieval. But actually, if they haven't established that the pupils have sort of some existing memory of the answer to those questions, like they've they basically learned it a bit to begin with, then there's just nothing to retrieve there. And if you don't, if you don't have that kind of, in, you know, if, if, if you haven't got that insight, the underlying theory, then it leads to the kind of misapplication of ideas in the classroom. So this is, this is, um, this helps tie together all our thinking really in a coherent account about why PD might succeed or might fail. And the balanced uh, hypothesis about balanced designs to, to answer your question is that where PD includes active ingredients or mechanisms that address all four of these purposes of PD, instill insight, motivate goals, develop techniques, embed practice, it's more likely to work or it'd be more effective than if it only addresses, you know, some of them, but not all of them. Love it. Absolutely love it. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Sam Sim stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember all of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the EWR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patreons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will cover the key mechanisms or active ingredients that Sam's research has revealed is the basis of quality and effective professional development. 
And in this way, the summary will be able to act as a quick and handy reference sheet for anyone looking to design effective professional development based upon cutting-edge research in this area. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Sam Sims. So the final kind of theoretical layer or conceptual layer we might we might call it that I'm that I'm keen to talk about is kind of is 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 also about slicing it up, slicing up the studies or the 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 approaches and it's slicing up in two ways and this was actually the probably the only part of the the report that I kind of didn't didn't quite get my head around so I'm hoping you can help me understand this today Sam sure um you 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 classified some of the studies and the approaches in terms of Mary Kennedy's persistent problems, which I originally wasn't that um, familiar with, even though I think Harry told me to read it after our previous podcast. I haven't haven't got around to that yet. <laughs> sure. So that was one thing. And then, then you also kind of categorize it in terms of whether it, what, what it addressed, so whether the PD looked at science of learning or inquiry or whether it taught teachers how to do formative assessment or data-driven instruction. So, so yeah, help me, help me understand those those categories and why you chose to have those kind of to me it seemed like two things that were maybe addressing the same thing i'm not entirely sure yeah no that that is exactly right and again this is definitely a zoom out moment so you know we are you know to go back to the title of the paper it's you know what are the characteristics of effective teacher professional development we're, we're, we're sort of studying the how of professional development like how do you design the professional development to yes to, to provide effective training on some content but we're not really talking about the content and like obviously this is a huge omission in a way you know if you if, if the content of your pd is garbage if it's garbage in on the content then it's garbage out you can have the best designed pd in the world but you know if your content is the equivalent of you know teaching people that two plus two equals five there's absolutely no way this is going to benefit benefit people's right so these extra ways in which we categorize the professional development are really that's not really the way we're thinking about pd here, but rather it's an attempt to limit the risk that we end up concluding PD with some certain features is more effective. But actually, the only reason we reach that conclusion is because, okay, maybe PD with a balanced design just happens to also be focused on cognitive science. That's the content of the PD. And what really explains it being more effective is that it's just, you know, it's dealing with some really useful, well-evidenced content around cognitive science in the classroom. And maybe you know, uh, I don't know, PD that's not balanced appears to be less effective to us, but that's only because it's dealing with some really junk content that's just no good. And so we need, this is more of a sort of research methods point that allows us to say, all right, let's look just at the, the studies that focus on cognitive science in the classroom, for example. And let's say within that group of studies where we're kind of roughly holding the content constant, do we still see that balanced designs are more effective than not balanced designs? Or if we look at Kennedy's persistent problem of, you know, uh, enlisting participation from students, which again, we're kind of roughly holding the content constant uh, in some loose way. Are balanced designs still more effective for that than imbalanced designs holding that constant? Mm. Okay, that helps. That helps me a lot. And I guess another way to put that is that 
you're kind of treating these this content related stuff as a as a moderator of the mechanisms so and I, I kind of think of a moderator like a gate it's like it, it lets a certain amount of st- it might be fully open or just partially open it lets a certain amount of the effect through so if if we're using formative assessment and formative assessment is a moderator that is you know really kind of boosts the signal of the mechanisms um, then we'd expect a balanced design if balanced designs are better to have a bigger effect through formative assessment than through something else that might not be as effective am, am i getting it right I think that's kind of an intuitive way to think of it, yeah. I mean, maybe you could think of it the other way around, that the PD is the moderator of the content in a way, like the PD design is the moderator of the content. So, you know, if the content has zero value, then it will still have zero value after it goes through the PD. But if it has high value, then a kind of kind of good uh, PD design might halve that value as it goes through the design, whereas uh, a really good PD design might maintain all of the value of the content kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So just to recap, because we've just covered a lot in the last like 40 <laughs> yeah, minutes sorry, or so. Everyone. We've covered a lot. So I'll just kind of recap for listeners. I think what I understand is some of the main points of this kind of theoretical section. So the first is that you made sure it wasn't garbage in, garbage out, and you were really strict about the studies you let in, only RCTs, and only those that um, use their primary outcome as standardized test results, um, which which kept kept quality studies coming into the program. The second key thing you looked at was mechanisms. So you said, actually, we're going to look at basically the main lens we're using for this whole study is mechanisms. And we're going to use those mechanisms um, in, in maybe two main ways. One is to actually categorize PD. So we're going to categorize lesson study, teacher loader communities, and instructional coaching in terms of mechanisms. And then also, we're going to kind of split the mechanisms up into these four categories, instilling insight, motivating goals, um, teaching techniques and embedding practice. And our hypothesis is that we need to actually hit all of these um, four areas in a balanced way with the mechanisms that, inclu- that are included in the PD in order to have an effect. And then in addition to that, we're going to have a bit of a look at you know what the PD is looking at, whether it might be inquiry or form of assessment, in order to try to tell if, if those things have a kind of multiplicative um, effect in relation to the mechanisms as well. Um, is that an okay summary, Sam? That is an excellent summary, yeah. And just to just to add a couple of small things to that, we're also interested in just a very basic level, just having more mechanisms. Is that associated with more effective PD? Is it just kind of a stronger, more muscular design? And we're also going to, yeah, this is really building on a point you already made. We're going to compare the effect sizes, the impact of, you know, instructional coaching and teacher learning communities and lesson study defined based on those mechanisms. Mm, love it. All right. That's the foundation. We're an hour in. I hope you're still with us, <laughs> listeners. Now we, can go, now we can get to the findings. So I'm going to ask a question now about the findings, um, Sam. That's, I think it's a wrong question to ask. So I'm looking forward to your answer um, in which I expect you'll tell me why it's the wrong question to ask. So here's a question. Of the three main forms that we looked at, lesson study, teacher learning communities, and instructional coaching, which of those three forms worked best? Right. So this is one of the results that I was kind of most interested in and excited to see once we've crunched the data. But actually, we find really no differences in average effect across these three forms of professional development. So they all look kind of, they have average effect sizes, which are pretty similar to each other. And the confidence intervals, which is kind of just an intuitively a sort of expression of the statistical uncertainty around those estimates 
they're all overlapping. Uh, so, so just to put this in quantitative terms, the average impact we find for professional development across all of the studies, all 104 studies, is 0.05 standard deviations, which in the Education Endowment Foundation way of expressing it is approximately one additional month of pupil progress. And then when we look at the specific forms, instructional coaching is about 0.08. Lesson study is about 0.06. And teacher learning communities is about 0.09. So these are all, again, roughly equivalent to one month of additional pupil progress. There just doesn't seem to be much difference. I mean, one important caveat here is that we're only looking at you know, by definition, we're only looking at examples of lesson study or instructional coaching that have been evaluated in a randomized controlled trial. So these are probably, I mean, you'd hope these are kind of well-designed, well-thought-through versions of these forms. But, you know, I, I, a conclusion I wouldn't want people to take away from this is that basically all PD everywhere is, effect, is you know, equally as effective. It's not. But, I mean, what we really conclude from this is that well, maybe it's better just to think about PD in, in terms of forms, uh, sorry, in terms of mechanisms uh, instead of in terms of forms. And this kind of goes back to my point earlier, Ollie, about these kind of large grain size ideas that we have in education, you know, inquiry versus direct instruction, or, you know, to put it in PD terms, instructional coaching versus lesson study. Uh, maybe they kind of conceal more than they reveal about how PD works. And interestingly, when we we have some graphs in the paper, if listeners want to look at this, it's roughly on page 38, where we, we take all of the 16 instructional coaching interventions. Remember, these are defined based on the, that list of forms. And then we plot how do these different instructional coaching interventions vary in effectiveness based on the number of additional mechanisms they have. So beyond what's required to make it instructional coaching, they might also have some other, some other mechanisms kind of knocking around. And we find that in general, instructional coaching, which includes more of these additional mechanisms, is more effective. The same holds for lesson study. And yeah, maybe there's some slight hint of that for teacher learning communities. And so, yeah, this, this again made us think, all right, maybe we just need to, maybe it's not the most useful thing to think about instructional coaching versus teacher learning communities or something like that. Maybe we're better off just thinking at the, the, the more zoomed in level of mechanisms. That's great. Now, did that surprise you, Sam? And, and I'll, I kind of asked this in relation to one of your articles you wrote a few years ago, which I really enjoyed, which was um, four reasons instructional coaching is currently the best evidence form of, of CPD. So has this kind of finding caused you to, to rethink that? And, and was it a surprise for you? Uh, it was a surprise for me. I thought there would be more variation, at least. Like, I didn't think it was going to be a score draw like this. <laughs> and I probably suspected that instructional coaching would come out, you know, looking more effective on average. So, yeah, this, is, this has changed my mind. Going back to that blog that I wrote in, uh, I don't know, 2018 or something like that, the argument that I was making was that, yeah, instructional coaching at the time was the best evidenced form of teacher professional development, by which I meant like the quantity and quality of evidence underpinning it was better than for other forms of PD. And yeah, just digging into that a bit, what was, you know, like the arguments I made were essentially, you know, we had replicated randomized controlled trials for instructional coaching, we had meta analysis of instructional coaching, and we had A B tests where people had kind of 
of delivered the same content, but done it through either instructional coaching or some other method. And all of them, you know, were supportive of, of instructional coaching. So yeah, how would I update that blog now? Well, clearly we now have meta-analyses for lesson study and strong teacher learning communities, because that's what we're doing in this paper. So we've got sort of equivalent evidence, if you like, there. I would need to look back through the studies to on the other two criteria. So like, do we have do we have replicated randomized controlled trials for lesson studies or strong teacher learning communities? And do we have A-B tests? But yeah, broadly speaking, the answer to your question is this is this is a surprise to me and this has changed the way I think about Teach PD. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me too. And in many ways, I think it's um it's kind of liberating because it shows that there's lots of ways that you can effectively improve teaching and, te- and learning uh, as long as you focus on those active ingredients. Right. Yeah. And so building on what we've just been talking about, one of the interesting things to me is because you mentioned those charts on page 37 and 38 and these graph, what these charts show is the effect size of an approach versus the total number of additional mechanisms. So we've just talked about how instructional coaching includes mechanisms like, um, I think there were four of them, goal setting, uh, modeling, new teaching strategies, and feedback. Um, but as I look at this graph, it's, it looks to me like instructional coaching, when it only includes those four active ingredients and not any more, the effect size of it actually seems to be close to zero. And it's only when we start to add additional active ingredients that we start to get uh, more impactful professional development. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yeah, you've, you've interpreted that correctly. So before, when I compared the three, you know, and I said instructional coaching is about 0.08, lesson studies about 0.06 and so on. What we're saying there is all of the PD programs we look at that include, you know, the active ingredients that define instructional coaching or lesson study, uh, they have an average impact of that. But they, you know, those programs might also include additional mechanisms, right, as you say. And so those results are, this is the impact of instructional coaching as currently practiced out there in the world, right? So it may just have additional mechanisms, you know, as part of the design beyond beyond the kind of core set. But yeah, in the in the graph you're you're referring to, which is probably on page 38 in the final version of the document, when we look at the group of instructional coaching studies and we look at, okay, if you have zero additional mechanisms in your instructional coaching program, what's the average impact? Then it comes out as close to zero, very close to zero. So it's a bit subtle, the interpretation of this. So we're saying that just having those core mechanisms seems to be associated with very low impact. But the way that kind of instructional coaching is currently done out there in the world where people, you know, based on our data, people often have some other mechanisms knocking around in the design, then it does tend to be effective. So this is kind of, yeah, I think it's quite subtle, but it it all leads back, I think, to that same kind of overarching conclusion that we came to in this work that what we really want to be doing is focusing on the mechanisms rather than the than the forms if you like Mm, it's great it's so fascinating and when i mean you look at the same same with lesson study it's like when you just do lesson study you basically get nothing but as soon as you start to add additional active ingredients into your lesson study you you know you start to get a bigger effect it's just such a i mean in many ways it makes a lot of sense 
you know, I was I, I was introducing, um, sorry, I was interviewing Rachel McFarlane, who was a you know real gun principal, and now she trains principals a couple of months back. And I'd ask her a question like, well, how do you do that? How do you develop independent learners? And she would she would come up with a list of like a hundred different things that she did in the school, all of which okay. contributed to this. And I was like. Wow, yeah. really did a lot. And so looking at this, yeah. it's like, well, actually, yeah, the more good things you add, the more likely it is to have an effect. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like if you're studying for a test and it's like, well, what should I do? Should I do this or this or this? And it's like, well, if you do a bit of all of them and then do a bit of these other things as well, you're probably going to converge towards a, a, a high mark. So yeah, it makes it yeah. makes sense, but it's also kind of a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, I think um in general, you know, I have this kind of heuristic for education that everything in education is the sum of kind of many, many small contributory things. You know, like if you wanted to explain how much progress a pupil made in a year in maths, there, you would just have to point to so many things, each of which made a tiny difference. And yeah, your um, you, the episode of your podcast you had with uh, the guy from Totteridge Academy, you know, that's another example of Sammy Kemba. Yeah, it's such an interesting conversation. His description of the Totteridge way of teaching maths there's just so much going on in that. You know, it's like so sophisticated and all of these sort of interconnected components, which together, you know, lead to what seems to be some like really great results in their maths department. And more generally, this that we consistently observe this pattern between more mechanisms, better results. This is, I hope, the kind of payoff from the months of careful reading and head scratching, trying to only include things that really look like active ingredients in our framework. And that's why we observe these relationships. And if we just think, you know, if we look at the overall results for the relationship between the total number of mechanisms in a PD program and its impact, we find that I think we've got uh, 14 mechanisms in our framework and programs that have zero of these mechanisms have they tend to have an impact close to zero, essentially, on the quality of teaching as reflected in people learning. Whereas programs that have almost all of them tend to have an impact closer to 0.17, which I think is uh, two or three additional months pupil progress in the EEF way of explaining effect sizes. So we really can explain a lot of the variation, explain in a, in a statistical sense, a lot of the variation in the impact of PD just based on how many of these mechanisms does a PD program include. That's great. Uh, another question I had when I was reading the paper, I didn't see you address it, but I'm I'm sure you must have had had similar questions. Did any of the mechanisms show up as like just super important? And any studies that didn't have that mechanism just like systematically lower impacts than the ones that did? Yeah. So we don't look at that. Um, just yeah, I agree. It would be really really interesting to look at. Um, but essentially, because when you're doing a meta-analysis like this, your sample size is basically the number of studies you've got. And so although 104 studies in a way sounds like quite a lot, it's actually quite a small sample. And it's like statistically, it's just very difficult to look at the effect of 14 different mechanisms individually on the impact in a sample that small. So we just we, we just can't really we can't really answer that question. And that that's a, just a limitation of our research, really. Mm. Okay. That's sad. I want to know. It is sad. Maybe in um, maybe in twenty years' time, there'll be enough data to support that kind of analysis. I don't know, but um, don't hold your breath. <laughs> everyone, everyone listening has to get out there and do us well, well-run RCTs based upon <laughs> standardized test scores, and then we might be able to get get to that answer. Um, cool. So another 
another thing you you explored was that that balance hypothesis, which was just to to remind people the the hypothesis that uh, PD approaches that include mechanisms from the four categories: instilling insight, uh, motivating the teachers, and setting goals, teacher techniques, and embedding practice. Ones that included mechanisms from all those four categories would be more effective. Did you find support uh, for this balance hypothesis, Sam? Yeah, so I'd say we found sort of qualified support for it. Um, and so I just talked through the results. So where we have a balanced design, which, as you say, is some professional development, which includes at least one mechanism in all four of those insights, goals, technique, practice categories, the average impact of that is 0.15 in effect sizes. So again, that's closer to, I, can't, I think it's either two or three months of additional progress. Another way to think about it is that it's three times the impact of PD on average. So it's quite a, quite a lot more impactful by the looks of it. There are lots of caveats to this though, but before I do that, you know, the average impact of PD, which addresses only three of the IGTP categories or only two or only one is closer to 0.05. And there's, there's, when you look at the graph, which is probably on page 41 of the final report, there's no upward sloping gradient. Uh, you know, there's no increase in effect sizes between PD that addresses one, two, or three. And then when it gets to four, you see this uh, sort of marked increase in the, in the average impact. So the caveats are the confidence intervals around this, uh, around our, our estimate of the average impact for balanced designs is really quite large. So we've only got nine studies out of our 104 um, that fall in this category. So we've just got less data there, which means we've got sort of um, less precision, less confidence in exactly where that estimate should be. And that confidence interval does overlap a bit with the confidence intervals from yeah, our, essentially our unbalanced designs. So, so that's really important to take into account. Like how should, so if, if you're tasked with planning teacher development in your school next week, what does that actually mean? Like, you know, how should you interpret that? Well, it means that the way we conclude in the paper is that on the balance of probabilities, so, you know, greater than 50%, we think it's probably worth trying to have a balanced design over an imbalanced design. But, you know, this is based on a still a relatively small sample. And so before we get like a fully convincing test, that's not balance of probabilities, but kind of, you know, without much doubt, <laughs> we need to get some more data on this. We need more studies. And we need to keep our eye on whether this finding changes as more studies are done. Mm. Yep. And that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's probably also safe for us to encourage, encourage listeners or, you know, to, I mean, it just makes sense, right? Like we've got to help teachers understand what they're doing so they don't run into lethal mutations. We've got to help them set goals so they've got something to work towards. It's If we don't show them what to do in the techniques, then they're probably not going to know what to do. If we don't help them change their habits, they're probably not going to change their habits. So that's me, right. not with my researcher hat on. I'm just saying we can we can seem to justify the mechanisms of why this balance approach would work. So to me, it makes a lot of sense for, for people out there designing PD to, to try to design something that is quote-unquote balanced. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to think about it. So there's just the sort of raw logic of the underlying framework. And then there's some support, but not kind of um, game set and match support from the data. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I always um, have to laugh. Well, it's not really a laughing matter. But when we think back to when the WHO was like, you know, don't wear a don't wear a mask for to protect yourself against COVID. And I was thinking to myself, well, it's an airborne disease. You catch it by bring, inhaling it. 
how I don't care if you don't have studies or not, but it seems to me like putting a barrier over me breathing it in is going to, you know, mechanistically, you know, help me in this yeah. area. So I feel like this is, you know, we, you know, there's, there's a large confidence interval. We're not hundred percent sure, but the mechanism seems to check out. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a sensible way of thinking about it. Yeah. Cool. Another interesting finding was around the consistency of implementation. What are some of the things you found in terms of how, whether the consistency of implementation matters and how consistently these, generally it was programs that you look at, like if someone goes to do dialogic teaching or something like that, how, how consistent was that implementation um, that you found in, in, in reviewing the studies? Yeah, so another important part of this research, which Harry actually led on, was that for a subsample of uh, 104 papers, they came with what's called a process evaluation where researchers have gone and kind of talked to um, the participants in the research and the people who delivered the PD and tried to understand how this PD landed on the ground. You know, did it, was it implemented kind of completely by the book as planned? Was it adapted to make it work in local settings? Well, some bits of the PD just dropped altogether because they proved impractical or unpopular and so on. And the main finding from this is that PD is widely and quite freely adapted when it on the ground, essentially. You know, like it's very common for quite substantial changes to the format or the design of the PD to be made. And this is not a surprise to Harry or I because, you know, local context varies and teachers are really, really busy. And, you know, adaptions just have to be made to make it feasible. So just, yeah, get it off the ground, essentially. And one of the interesting ways in which it's adapted is that, you remember at the start, we talked about, you know, what was the previous consensus on professional development? Well, one of the things which we were all supposed to be doing was having sustained professional development that kind of went on for a long time or, you know, consisted of many hours of professional development. And yeah, it's very clear from looking at these process evaluations, the kind of implementation side, that that is just not really doable in the majority of schools. You know, it's it, teachers just don't have time for that. And so, you know, the professional development ends up getting kind of truncated and shortened just to sort of make it doable. One of the one of the lessons we kind of take from this, and this feeds back into our overall idea about mechanisms, is that it's very clear to it's sorry, it's very important to be clear on what's the kind of non-negotiable part of the design, what are the things the active ingredients that really need to be maintained as far as possible, and then what are the bits which are yeah adaptable uh, and can be can be changed to fit. It's the yeah, it's going back to the idea of tight loose essentially. And given the high likelihood of things being changed and adapted on the ground, it's just really important to be clear about that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I guess what's cool there is, you know, originally they said it needs PD needs to be sustained. But if we actually bring that back to the question of, well, what's the, the mechanism there? What's the active ingredient? You know, I would argue that it's it's pushing towards that that embedded practice idea, which you still have in your framework, but it's framed more as as the kind of that the mechanism that leads to that outcome of it being embedded in that uh, that habit changing rather than a hypothesized way of changing that, which is making sure that it's sustained. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to think about as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so as well as being kind of very succinct, we hope the framework's just very useful because everything's defined in terms of, you know, quite precisely in terms of the thing you really need to focus on. So we try to we try to eliminate the ambiguity where the ambiguity would matter most for making it work. That's awesome. Fantastic. Now, one of the things that was really interesting was we we kind of talked about some of the 
the kind of categories of PD before. So one was science of learning, one was inquiry, one was data-driven, one was formative assessment. What did you find in terms of those categories um, of PD and what conclusions can we draw from that? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just as a reminder, we're going to, we're going to kind of do our analysis and get our results all over again, but we're going to do it separately for the set of PD that focused on uh, one area of content and so on. And so we do it for formative assessment where we have 14 studies. We do it for inquiry, loosely speaking, broadly speaking, inquiry teaching where we have 16 studies. And then we do it for data-driven instruction where we only have seven studies. So it's really pretty thin, the data at that point. And in the formative assessment and the inquiry category, we find that very similar results to our overall findings. That is that uh, PD with zero of the mechanisms focusing on that content has essentially zero impact. And uh, PD that has lots of additional mechanisms has kind of noticeably higher impact. So sort of up to sort of 0.1 and slightly above. For data-driven instruction, we don't really see that. We see a sort of slight downward slope, but there are so few data points that I just think I'm not quite clear what we're looking at here, how informative that is. Yeah, so I mean, in, in some way, this is designed primarily to, yeah, as I said, check our main results aren't just being driven by differences in the content of the PD as opposed to the design, which is what we're really interested in. But another thing to take from this is that PD focused on either formative assessment or inquiry teaching, as long as it's well designed, seems to seems to be effective. I mean, I guess some people would be surprised by those findings, depending on their orientation to, you know, to, to those topics, inquiry probably being the most controversial. I haven't sort of sat down and looked through, you know, all 16 of those those papers to see what the substance really was. But, you know, it's worth sort of kind of restating the evidence on inquiry, I guess, in that, you know, the, the experimental evidence and actually the observational evidence shows that inquiry is effective if it's highly guided. So, you know, if the teacher constrains the number of choices and the number of things that pupils pay attention to during an investigation in science, during some practical work, then that seems to often, you know, improve learning. Whereas unguided inquiry in which pupils are kind of formulating their own research questions and deciding which experiments to do appears, to, you know, is not effective presumably because it's just kind of cognitively overwhelming for pupils to engage in all that stuff and still actually learn something at the end. So I haven't looked through these inquiry studies, but my guess, and it is, a, it is a, an informed guess based on, based on the existing literature, is that a lot of these more effective inquiry or a lot of these inquiry studies in general are kind of highly guided forms of inquiry. But it'd be interesting to look into that in future. Mm, yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I think Harry's recommendation or takeaway at our end of our last podcast was, I was like, you know, anything you want listeners to go away today and do. And he said, yeah, find people you disagree with who are smart and, and read their work. And I think this is a, this, this is a great example because I think one of the things that causes to lose a lot of ground and a lot of fantastic opportunities in education is when people switch off as soon as they hear a certain label. And I know that happens a lot, especially with people who are in favor of explicit instruction, as I myself am, when they hear labels like inquiry. So I'm 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 really encouraged by this because it shows that, you know, just because something's labeled as inquiry doesn't mean it's not effective. And when we actually look at the statistical significance of of these three approaches, formative assessment, inquiry, and data-driven, um, the only one that you seem to have that statistical significance for uh, and in a positive direction is actually inquiry. So, yeah, to me, that's that's really exciting. And it also adds weight to that, you know, argument that Harry made 
to really look b- below the surface and again move move past those labels. Yeah, and I mean the your conversation again with uh, about Totteridge Academy. I mean that shows so clearly the nuance required for understanding the value of something like that. This is not the same as inquiry, but like uh, group work with pupils. You know, so the the question is group work effective? It's just a completely inadequate question. And that episode really showed, you know, that they, all of the work they go to, the sort of, yeah, the direct instruction, the chanting, the, yeah, the, the really kind of slow, careful focus on models and conceptual understanding, the checking for understanding. And then only after you've done all that stuff and a bunch more stuff, and you're confident that you've got kind of 80% understanding in the classroom, then they start doing group work amongst pupils. So yeah, there's just, there's just so much more kind of nuance and understanding it's not just is it effective but kind of when is it effective mm. and and so so kind of just circle back and we've alluded to it already but revisiting that original consensus so the original quote-unquote consensus was sustained practice that's collaborative with teacher buy-in subject specific draws on external expertise practice-based how do you feel about that now do you do you feel that you know, it, we need to just completely throw that out and go with this? Or do you think, well, actually, now that we've done this analysis, it shows there's quite a bit of overlap with what that said originally and what we found here? Or where do you sit on that original consensus? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, as I said at the start of the podcast, when we looked into the evidence underpinning this original consensus, our conclusion was mostly there's just no evidence to kind of believe this one way or the other. Like, we just don't know this stuff. And so, yeah, obviously what we're trying to do in this paper is go out and ask, you know, is there evidence for this and is there evidence for other things? And some of it, some of our findings around, you know, the mechanisms and the, well, around the mechanisms actually, you know, you can kind of see links back to some of these things. They're sort of loosely associated. So, for example, as you mentioned, like the sustained, you can see echoes of that maybe in revisit ideas or in the overall idea of embedding practice. But it, it is a different idea, sustained and yeah, revisit revisit uh, material or embed practice. Like those are different things, and crucially, I think they're different in a way that's kind of more useful for teachers and you know people working on PD. Right? They're just much more specific. There's independent evidence that you know they're active ingredients across a range of domains as well as in PD, and and there's a clear account of like why those things would be expected to to make a difference. On collaborative, we end up with a mechanism that's actually pretty similar to that. So in what we call uh, practical social support, so yeah, there's quite a lot of alignment there. Uh, but again, I would argue that it's just better evidence. Like there's just more reason to believe that that is uh, genuinely important now. Totally. And, and practical social support also leaves more space for like a mentor, mentee, or even like more directive coach kind of a, a dynamic, whereas collaborative, it's like, well, that, you know, if it's collaborative, then you can't be a directive instructional coach, for example. So I think that that alludes to that more flexibility as well. Right. Uh, yeah, it clears up a lot of the ambiguity, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, the third one was has teacher buy-in. I mean, I don't know. This this feels to me like that's not even a way of designing PD, is it? That's I mean, it's essentially useless. I think it, it's kind of an intermediate outcome of a good design. Like if you've designed it well, then presumably teachers will be kind of like excited about it and bought into it. So I think yeah, that one for me is just I, I, I don't know what to make of that. Maybe it's around motivation. It's, you know, we, we need to motivate the teachers to have the buy-in. Right. So that we have like three, three mechanisms, I think, related to that. 
all of which tell you, yeah, how to go about achieving that. Exactly. As opposed to just saying, please achieve it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Subject specific. We don't really look at this in our meta-analysis and maybe that that could be like a a criticism of our meta-analysis or a limitation. A lot of the PD in our meta-analysis is subject-specific. I think it's only a a small minority of the programs are focused on kind of cross-curricular areas of teaching. So we may, I'll go back and have a look, but we may just not have enough data to really support inferences about that. And more generally, we just didn't really, we didn't manage to come across any mechanisms, like anything that we genuinely thought was, you know, an active ingredient across domains that would allow us to sort of include that in our analysis, essentially, if we're kind of true to our principles that we want to be really careful about only including things which really appear to be active ingredients, then, you know, then we just can't really look at that yet. Maybe somebody else can um, find some some really good literature that would support, that would allow that to happen, but we could not. Draws on external expertise. Well, again, this it's like that, that didn't appear in our analysis because we just couldn't find any evidence that that was kind of a mechanism. The closest we come to it is the mechanism of just instruction, which is kind of like direct instruction, essentially just being told how to do something. But again, that is that's just quite a different idea to draw on external expertise. You know, maybe the external expertise comes in and leads a kind of, uh, you know, discovery learning session. You, that's not the same. Uh, and then the last one is practice-based, for which we've arguably, you know, the, our, our whole uh, developed techniques and um, embed practice are, you know, that's all about practice-based. But we've just broken it down to a much more granular level. I think there's like 10 mechanisms in those two categories. I can't remember how many there are, but, you know, we're just much, much more specific about the way in which it should be practice-based and what that is likely to achieve. Mm. What a wrap up! It, to kind of to kind of summarize the the findings of your study, if if listeners go away, if you want them to go away today and think, you know, oh, now I have a clearer vision of what makes effective PD. What do you what message do you want them to take away, Sam? I think I want them to take away that you should you should really think about trying to include active ingredients and. Crucially, there's like quite a high bar for something to be considered an active ingredient. Like we spent months gathering the evidence from the literature to sort of uh, build this list. We tried to be really careful about, you know, not letting any, not letting any garbage in. And so this is like a nice starting point for thinking about, okay, yeah, which of these could I include? Which would be a good fit with what we're already doing or what we're trying to achieve? And then also that's it's on the balance of probabilities sensible to make sure that you've got some mechanisms addressing each of our four purposes of PD, uh, instill inside, motivate goals, develop techniques and embed practice. And as well as that, I think some ways in which this might be misinterpreted, we do find that PD with more mechanisms tends to be more effective. You know, if it's got 10, it's better than five. And if it's got 12, it's better than 10. But, you know, I think there's maybe a danger that trying to shoehorn in 14 mechanisms in a kind of incoherent, kind of overloaded, overly demanding design for your PD is probably not going to be very helpful. Having said that, in the appendix of the report, we've got three examples 
of balanced designs, which kind of by definition have a lot of mechanisms. You know, they've got to have at least one in every category. And so if you're looking for ways of designing PD that is kind of balanced and rich in, in mechanisms or active ingredients, then that's a pretty good place to start. Go and look at those descriptions of the interventions in the in the appendix of the report. And if you've got access to journal articles, you can look up, uh, you know, those articles and read the description in full. And so that'll just be a nice way of thinking about, okay, what's actually a coherent um, sensible, feasible way of yeah building some professional development around these these principles of you know make sure you include enough mechanisms and make sure the mechanisms are are kind of balanced across the four purposes. That's fantastic. What what are your hopes for the impact of this research, Sam? Honestly, I just hope it's useful for people. It's like the greatest, um, the nicest thing that somebody can say to me is that I found that research useful. I hope it's. Despite the fact that there's quite kind of quite a lot of ideas to introduce to explain it, I hope it's accessible. You know, we've got some nice tables. We spend a lot of time providing concrete examples in the report, which will really, you know, if you're interested in this and want to sort of dig into it deeper, that will really help consolidate the, the kind of stuff we've discussed today. And, you know, we've got some tables in the report which kind of summarize all these elements and just provide quite a nice clean, yeah, just a, a clean summary of the ideas that should be, I hope, useful for, for designing professional development. In England, we're currently, the policy direction is that we're moving towards more standards for more things. So we we now have these, uh, they're called core content frameworks. So there's a core content framework for initial teacher training, core content framework for the early career, and content frameworks for people doing, uh, teachers doing specialist qualifications like the National Pro Professional Qualification for Leading Teacher Development. And so hopefully um, some of the findings from this can inform future design and revisions of being incorporated in some of those courses uh, and those standards to, yeah, just to, to better inform the design of, of teacher training in England uh, going forward. Awesome. I have no doubt that that, that will be the case. <laughs> Thanks, Ollie. Some closing questions, um, if we may now, Sam. Three, three or, or moral, you'd have a few more if you need. Twitter recommendations. Ooh, that's a good one. I would recommend following uh, Heather Hill in the US. Um, she's an academic at Harvard who does lots of interesting work on teacher professional development, lots of experiments, and is doing some really interesting work uh, that sort of drives in a similar direction, trying to isolate the kind of active ingredients of professional development. I would recommend I recommend Harry. Harry's great on Twitter. You know, if you're a teacher, he's got so much useful blogs and stuff uh, from other people that he retweets. Who else would I recommend? I mean, I recommend you, but that seems pretty trite. <laughs> and I would also recommend actually following my research center. Lots of interesting uh, new research generated by my colleagues and myself. Uh, and that is the Center for Education Policy and Equalizing Opportunities. And the handle, I think, is at CPO UCL, University College London. Fantastic. And three book recommendations, Sam. Book recommendations. Ooh. Well, I'm just about to read Paige Harden's new book on the genetic lottery, how uh, genetics, you know, our genetic inheritance kind of influences our life, which is obviously very controversial, um, but uh, also based in tons of science and really, really interesting. Um, 
I also recently read, uh, these are both going to be non-education books, actually, but I recently read uh, The Weirdest People in the World by Joe Henrik, which is about how Western psychology came to be and how it's different to psychology in other countries. So, you know, there isn't just this one thing called human psychology. It's probably one of the, you know, in terms of people talk about big arguments, it's probably the biggest argument I've ever come across. I mean, he's explaining (laughs) like the origins of how humans think and he's doing it with kind of rigorous social science. It's absolutely remarkable. Um, It's quite long, but yeah, I'd recommend it. Anything else? That's two. That's two. Uh, I think that's all I've got for now. Okay, no worries. Uh, What are you currently excited about, Sam? I'm very, very excited about running um, experiments on teacher professional development using simulators. So, yeah. So, um, you know, airline pilots have obviously used simulators for decades. Medical students use simulators to train you know, doing various um, physical procedures, um, things like surgery, but also non-surgical procedures. And there's a large literature in medical education around kind of how valuable this is for helping trainee medics gain new skills. And in the last um, couple of years, Julie Cohen at Virginia University has started running experiments um, using simulated classrooms, the specialist software teachers basically looking at a TV screen. And it allows you to A, B test different approaches. So is approach A or approach B more effective for helping teachers keep the pupils in the simulated classroom on task as opposed to off task, for example. But the the potential for it is massive. There's so many things you could look at, including, you know, quite techie, but very interesting things like eye tracking studies. So, you know, we know that experts look at the same thing as a non-expert and attend to and see different things about the environment. And we know that that happens with teachers as well. Um, So there's the potential for kind of understanding what is it that a novice teacher is missing and is there a way of helping them notice what an expert would notice about a kind of near realistic classroom environment. So yeah, I'm hoping to get involved in some research like that quite soon. That is exciting. That sounds awesome. And any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Sam? I would recommend reading the report. I mean, it's a bit of a plug, but I think, yeah, as I said, we we try to put a lot of work into exemplifying everything really carefully and kind of expressing ourselves as cleanly as we could. And this has obviously been a really good deep dive over two hours, but there's a lot more to be gained, I think, from yeah, from just sitting down with the report and kind of uh, yeah, revisiting material, as we might say. <laughs> Fantastic, Sam Sims. Thank you so much for your time today. It's 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 been a marvelous conversation. I really really enjoyed reading the report. It was it was very heartening to me because you know after I'm sure this was the case for myself and I'm sure for many listeners as well after the Adrian. Simpson episode, critiquing the meta-analysis back in episode 17, I really lost a lot of faith in meta-analyses more broadly, and I started to really see the cracks and and the weaknesses in them. And it's it's just so encouraging to see a group of people, you know, basically addressing all the criticisms that Adrian made within within that episode and within his writing uh, and producing really, really rigorous research on that front. So that was awesome. The next thing I was really grateful for was the fact that, you know, you're just your really high focus on mechanisms. So one of the, probably the, probably the biggest lesson for me from running this podcast over the last almost five years is just 
we just need to talk about mechanisms all the time. Mechanisms help us understand how things happen. And when we understand how things happen, we can work out what's what it's a waste of time to do and what it's really important that we keep on doing. So the fact that you've used that as the basis of this whole study is to me so exciting and really the direction that I hope more education research moves in, not only in the teacher professional development space, but also just in generally, you know, looking at looking at what makes effective teaching. I think we can move away from these labels as we've we've talked about today. You know, is that inquiry, is that explicit and talk about, you know, how are we giving feedback? Is that linked to the outcomes? You know, what questions are we asking? How are we motivating students? Things like that. So that was really exciting. It was also really encouraging to to speak to someone who is a, a real serious like full-time researcher but also takes enough of an interest in on the ground teaching to listen to two or three hours or however long that was of my podcast with Sammy Kempner. That's, <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. That's great. I mean that's just such a you know I, I wish more education researchers who work at your you know quantitative level would listen to that just just to stay connected to the classroom and I think that's really really um encouraging uh, and also a great indication that you are serious about uh, in the center for education policy and equalizing opportunities that you are really serious about equalizing op- opportunities because I think it is that knowledge of what happens in the classroom that's so crucial to link to what the research is in order to have that impact and finally closing words you said these were the nice nicest words that someone could say to you so i'm going to say them i found that research really useful sam so thanks for your time today sam and i and i can't wait for for more research from you thanks ollie look forward to speaking again soon Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Sam Sims. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielover.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielover.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues, or if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning.